there was a lot of rubble, and as it grew steeper, it grew more uh, slippery. And the gully got so steep, it kind of funneled down to a point, and I finally just ditched my backpack and hiked down a little further and saw that the point that it led to was um, a cliff, a straight-down cliff, kind of something that would have probably been a waterfall if there had been water flowing. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 188. What are Yolandi, Greg, Brian, and Gavin up to these days? Stay tuned to find out. Welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. I wanted to create a special episode where I caught up with a few of our past guests. So on this episode, you'll hear updates from Brian Snyder, Gavin Hennigan, Greg Valenzuela, and Joe Rust. These are all people that I've interviewed in the past, and they've been out there doing some awesome things. And I just thought maybe I would have a little mini interview with each one of them and catch up and see what they're up to. So I hope you enjoy. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is sponsored by BiotropicLabs.com, custom formulators and sports performance supplements for active people like you. Designed for everyone from weekend warriors and outdoor enthusiasts to high-level athletes, if your body moves, you need Biotropic. My first update is with Yolandi Rust. She was episode three on the Adventure Sports Podcast way back in February of 2015. On that episode, she told us about her solo circumnavigation of the African continent. She was the first woman to do it on a motorcycle. So let's listen in and see what she's up to these days. All right, guys, I'm here with Yolandi Rust, and you longtime listeners uh, will probably remember Yolandi because she was episode three, which was actually one of our inaugural launch episodes. So Yolandi is a pioneer of the Adventure Sports Podcast, which we appreciate, obviously. But if you remember right, um, Yolandi talked about her trip around the continent of Africa. She became the first woman to solo circumnavigate the continent of Africa on a motorcycle. And her story was really unique because she actually started out on a, a mountain bike. And then after some unfortunate incidents, uh, she ended up having to go back home and start over again. But that's what got her into motorcycle riding. So I wanted to catch up with Yolandi because it's been well over a year at this point. Yolandi, you were on uh, February 28th, 2015. So a lot of time has grown in between us. And I wanted to have you back on to, to hear everything you're up to it sounds like you're pretty busy these days hey travis um yeah wow time is flying i cannot believe when you just say february 2015 i was like wow (laughs) isn't that crazy (laughs) (laughs) that's crazy that is crazy but it's good to be back (laughs) yeah it's great to have you so Man, I mean, catch us up. What is it you're doing now? I see that you're, you've are you been involved with the GS Trophy. You have some aspirations to do um, the Dakar Rally eventually, and you're working on a book. So just go back to kind of where we left off. What's <laughs> what's Joe been up to since we talked last? Yeah, so um, while so much has happened in the interim, uh Basically, since the last time we spoke, um, I've been doing a lot of training in terms of 
um, instructing um, other riders. So last year, February, I did my international qualification to become a, a qualified BMW off-road instructor. And I've since been really busy with, uh, you know, giving training all over. So throughout South Africa, um, Spain, a bit of Germany. Um, and in the meantime, well, like you mentioned, there was the GS Trophy as well. So in February of this year, uh, BMW Motorrad had the GS Trophy happening in Thailand. But what was really awesome about this um, GS Trophy this year was that they, for the first time ever, they had an all-female team that competed in the event. And I was very lucky to have been invited to be the first ever female marshal at the event. Uh, so that was absolutely amazing. I had the most amazing time. Um, there was a whole Marshalls team that went over and, you know, these are riders and people from all over the world. And it, we just had so much fun, fantastic riding, the local cultures, you know, the scenery, the trails, tracks, um, food, all of it was just an amazing experience. Um, then, uh, as you mentioned as well, the book, so the book is in the pipeline. The aim is to have that published by middle next year. So that means I kind of have to have it finished by uh, end of this year. So working on that. Um, and then furthermore, I have recently uh, started up a new company with a partner, a company called Joe Rust Adventures, and we are doing training and tours through this company. And I have my first couple of tours coming up in November here in South Africa. Um, and, you know, I wasn't sure how, you know, what the interest would be, but our first two tours are fully booked and we just started working on a new tour um, today. So early next year, we're doing a whole around South Africa tour. And these tours are open for people all over, you know, local and for people from all over the world. So that has been taking up a lot of my time. And then I am setting up my very own off-road training academy. So busy setting that out, building um, a new enduro park. And that will be launching in October of this year. And then in between training for the Dakar Rally. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> so, yeah, there is. So much going on. It is absolutely insane. But you know what? I have not been this happy in um, – well, I'm always happy, but I'm just enjoying what I'm doing so much, really loving it. And how did you find time to squeeze in a small interview with me with all that <laughs> stuff going on? You're doing even more than I thought you were. <laughs> it is. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. But I mean, I, I, you know, when you do what you love, then you don't mind um, spending pretty much all your wake, you know, waking hours um, doing it. And I really, really love what I do. So, you know, I could do it 24 seven. I just need a bit of sleep somewhere in between. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got that right. As you're rattling off everything that you're, you've gotten involved in, even since we've talked, I just think, you know, it's just in there thinking what a lucky girl this is. I mean, you know, to be able to put together these tours and have them fully booked, you know, from the get goes, that's a pretty, pretty good thing. That's a, that's a good problem to have. I, um, I know. It it really took me by surprise. I mean, I said to, to my business partner, because he said to me, Joe, trust me, you know, um, it'll it'll go well. You'll see. And I said, okay, well, let's put it, 
let's just test this. Let's see what the interest is. If people want to come ride with me. And um, the first tour we put out, I mean, I think basically in the first two or three weeks, it was fully booked. And I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> what did I do here? <laughs> and he said to me, Joe, I've never had this problem before. I've never had to send out an email to people and say to them, um, um, we're sorry, but we're fully booked. <laughs> and I said, well, like you said, it's a good problem to have. So we said, okay, well, let's just do a second tour. And now it's at a point where we're thinking we might have to do a third tour. So I'm like, Okay, well, this is telling me I've made the right decision. I'm going in the right direction. And yeah, uh, darn, I got to do more riding on my motorcycle <laughs> and get paid to do it. Yeah, I know, it's right? terrible. <laughs> I know. Hey, someone's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Why not you? So I understand that you've upgraded your motorcycle. The last time we talked to you, you had you were a very new rider actually on a BMW F650GS and. Actually, just a car, if I remember right. And now you've gotten a little bit bigger bike. What are you riding these days? That is right. I was still on the 650 the last time we spoke. So, I mean... You were. So, <laughs> and I I wasn't... I don't... Yeah, I wasn't an instructor yet. Um, so, now I've gone through... From the 650, I had an 800 GS. Then I had an 800 GS Adventure. And I've been on the 1200 pretty much... Mm, for the last, I would say, eight months or so. So I think I'm now on my fourth or fifth 1200. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You're going through bikes faster than I do. <laughs> I've gone through a few of them, but basically I've been, you know, riding demo models. Um, uh, but I recently got my very own 1200. Um, so it just went for its first service yesterday, actually. And yeah, I've gotten so used to this. I absolutely love the 1200, I must say. And, you know, we rode, that's what they rode in the GS Trophy. So the um, competitors were on the R1200 GS and the marshals on the R1200 GS Adventure. So I was riding an adventure in Thailand. And initially I thought, um, you know, it was, it would take more effort for me to handle this big beast. Um, but I was absolutely amazed at just how effortless the bike made everything feel. It was it is such an amazing machine. So, yeah, I'm completely in love with the, with the 1200. Yeah, I've read that. I have a I'm on a F800GS now and I like that size of bike just because I do a lot of uh, off-road riding and I just I just always assumed that the 1200 would just be too much bike for that kind of stuff. And yet I hear you say it and I read it time and time again that people are saying it's it's just incredibly nimble for the size of the bike it is. So it sounds like you agree. It is, it is. I I'm, I I have to agree. I mean, um, you know, I initially also thought I was a bit intimidated by the size of it. But once I started riding it, I also had an 800. And I'm fairly short, so I'm like 5 foot 5. And... Uh, the 1200 just feels more comfortable because it's a bit lower. It has a lower center of gravity. Um, you know, it has that low end grunt, that torque, um, that I really love when you get into the technical stuff. And, uh, the balance is just unbelievable. So really the bike makes it easy. I think the 1200 out of the GS range, really honestly, I have to say the 1200 is the easiest bike to ride. Huh. Very interesting. 
Well, I think that the height obviously makes a big difference because even the 800 has a pretty high yeah. uh, seat height. So it's I didn't realize that the 1200 was that much lower. Well, anytime that you get tired of one of these demos or this old bike that you're <laughs> riding right now, this clunker, just feel feel free to put it on a plane and send it over I'll to me. I'll send one over. Or maybe I'll ride yeah. it over. But if I there you go. Over, by the time I get there, you might not want it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take my chances. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about the book. You're you're trying to squeeze the book in in the middle of everything else you're doing. You're trying to uh, finish up by this end of the year, looking to publish uh, by middle of next year. So this book is uh, around Africa. This is the book about your your 18-month, 28-country journey around the African continent, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the book is going to be a mix between a bit of a semi-autobiography and uh, a really useful guide for, um, you know, any aspiring overland travelers. So uh, I, want, I wanted to obviously contain my story, but I also wanted to be a useful guide for people who you know, want to travel um, through or around Africa or through the countries that I travel through. Um, and basically, I mean, the, the the real true story of why I started this will be in the book. That, that story, truth be told, has never really been told. So it will come across in the book. So I'm really excited about that. Um, it's taken forever to, to write this book. Nobody ever told me it's such hard work to write a book. <laughs> I have a whole newfound respect for writers. Um, I mean, it really is. It takes a lot of um, yeah effort and time and dedication. But yeah, like you said, and it's true, I, I have to finish it by the end of the year or I want to finish it by the end of the year. And then we're looking at publishing middle of next year. And that will publish probably go hand in hand with a couple of tours, um, you know, locally here in South Africa, but also in Europe and America. So we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Well, very cool. We'll definitely keep an eye out for that. No, uh, I'll put that on my list. Definitely up my, uh, my alley for reads for <laughs> sure. So you have some Dakar rally plans too, that we briefly mentioned earlier, and you've pushed those off a little bit just to give yourself a little bit of breathing room from the sounds of it. That's probably a, a, good smart decision so tell me what you're thinking about for the Dakar rally yeah look um I know that I have to be realistic about it I, I obviously understand just what a big undertaking it is the Dakar rally is you know not it's not called the toughest race on earth for nothing and with everything that's going on at the moment I just um say to myself well you know what I'm gonna do it it's I, I will do it and it doesn't have to be next year um, I want to give myself enough time to prepare properly because there's a lot of racing and preparation involved. Um, and with all the tours that we're running at the moment and soon, you know, the, the training academy will be up and running. That's going to be taking up a lot of my time initially. So that's why I decided I'll just, I'm pushing out the Dakar rally for a couple of years just to give myself some breathing space, get all these things done that I'm currently busy with. And then, you know, from next year onwards, I can start focusing on, um, you know, doing more races. I have, I actually, I've started um, training. I have a personal trainer, um, and she is killing me in the gym. Uh, but I've got that going, and probably next year I'll start looking at doing some local races and slowly, you know, start building up until I feel I'm ready to take on the big monster. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
currently there has been no female from Africa that has uh, competed in it, correct? Yeah, that's correct. There hasn't been a female from the African continent. Yeah, so, well, even if you're pushing it off, hopefully you still uh, still get to claim that prize. That would be pretty neat. Yeah. Be one to put on your resume for sure. <laughs> that would be pretty <laughs> cool. But hey, just, just making it there um, in, in any case would be a big accomplishment. Yeah, no doubt. Well, last time we talked, you were doing a lot with a group called GS Girls. How's that going right now? I know you're really heavily involved in getting women into riding and uh, getting them some safe training for off-road riding. Yeah, so that is still going strong. Um, oh, it has grown dramatically. Um, so the page on Facebook, because um, it's it's mainly uh, you know posted on social networking sites. Um, but there's a lot of local rides that has, you know, started happening all over the world. And um, I was invited to Spain a couple of months ago to give GS Girls training there and Germany. Um, so I had my first trainings um, in Spain in May, which was really amazing, huge success. And I, I think on the page... On Facebook, we're up to almost 11,000 followers now. So, wow. yeah, it's really grown immensely. And so many female riders, um, you know, coming on board, which is amazing to see. And this community has just um, exploded. And it's awesome because all these girls are coming together, you know, riding. Um, um, I'm giving more and more training, which I really love. But the great thing is, although it's, you know, the GS Girls, even in the training sessions, it's not just all female. So we have an all-girls training or all-girls all tour, um, but there's also mixed training in tours. And I find those to be more popular because there's more of a balance. Um, but it's it's great to see more and more women starting to ride and really enjoy it and, you know, gaining the confidence through um, joining these communities and also going through training and then coming on these tours so it's it's absolutely amazing. It's awesome. I love it. That's great. What a good opportunity for both sides, for you and for those women as well. Absolutely. Okay. So your Facebook, I'm sorry, your website is joerust.com, and you have some new things going on, Joe Rust Adventures and the new Academy. So are there some new websites that people should go visit you on? Um, so joerust.com is still there. Um, I'm busy rebuilding it with all the new stuff that's happening, but it's going to be on the same domain name. So it will, it will remain joerust.com, but pretty soon the whole look and feel will just change and all the new information will be up there. All I'll be running a blog, um, with all kinds of, you know, fun and in interesting articles and all the news will go up on that website as well. Okay, cool. So people will ultimately be able to find out about Joe Rust Adventures and about the Academy through through that JoeRust.com. Exactly. On the website on JoeRust.com or they can search for Joe Rust on Facebook. So that's my official um, page on Facebook. Well, normally at this point I would ask you what else is on your horizon, <laughs> but I'm afraid to ask that question because I don't know if I want to hear the answer. I think you have enough on your plate well, as it is. <laughs> it's enough for the time being. I think it's enough. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Well, I'll watch out for the book and I want you to let me know if, uh, if it's coming out and obviously we want to get you back on, um, and then watch how you, uh, how you progress in the, the Dakar plans and the, the race ultimately and have you back on at that point as well. Yeah, that would be fantastic. All right, cool. Well, thanks Joe for visiting with me. I was uh, happy to, to hear that you're doing well and you have so much on your plate. Things are 
going well and the fact that you're out there writing and getting paid for it just makes me truly jealous. So carry on. Be safe. Thank you, Travis. Chat again soon. All right. Sounds good. When I first interviewed Greg Valenzuela, I found him down in Tierra del Fuego, down in South America. He had already logged 37,000 miles on the seat of his mountain bike. During that interview, he shared great stories from his experiences and all those miles. This time, I catch up with him up in Washington State in the Pacific Northwest. All right, back with Greg Valenzuela. If you guys remember, we interviewed Greg. Um, man, Greg, it was a long time ago. Let me see. It was January 18th uh, is when we did this. And we caught up with you down in Tierra de Fuego. And I yeah, yeah. think today, I mean, you're still pedaling. And if I'm not mistaken, you're up in the state of Washington in the Pacific Northwest, right? That's correct. Um, yeah, I've been pedaling, pedaling, pedaling. It's been... Uh... It's been quite an adventure, actually, since the, even the last time I've talking to you. And, uh, yeah, incredible, incredible stories through South America. It's been uh, remarkable, remarkable for sure. Yeah, I'm now in Washington after flying out of Lima. And uh, we went to Los Angeles uh, for summer in the United States. And I've been, I came all the way up the, uh, the West Coast and come into Canada a little bit. And now I'm kind of uh, finding my way down the Cascade Shores uh, ACA routes here in the United States. Man, that is awesome. So, I mean, you haven't been pedaling the whole time, but you've been putting in some serious miles since the last time we talked. So tell me where you've been, what you've seen since, uh, since January. Wow. Well, since the last time I talked to you, I've seen, uh, most of South America that I had planned. Um, I, you know, I took off from Ushuaia and it was snowing every day there and it was still just a terrific place to visit. And then riding out of the snow, I, I um, get up into southern Patagonia um, as I enter Chile out of Argentina, um, and it just get more, it just got more and more incredible as I got into um, and into this, some of the most uh, epic uh, ancient glaciers like Pico Moreno and um, riding on the Cartel Estrell, um, one a really famous uh, dirt road uh, through uh, Patagonia. Um, just incredible stuff coming all the way to uh, uh, over the Andes, making Andes crosses over from Argentina to Chile, over 15, 16,000 foot passes and um, going over the salt flats in Bolivia and um, going uh, hiking through Machu Picchu and Rainbow Mountain. And um, I don't know, I've been a, a busy little critter uh, off the bike and on the bike in South America. South America was a little bit of different type of touring that uh, I, I expected. And uh, it was super tough. Uh, probably the most challenging touring I've ever done, um, for sure. Um, so I'm just, you know, I could go on and on about every little detail, of course, but it's, um, it's just incredible, incredible, incredible. And many, many other cyclists uh, are, um, are doing across the continent or across South America. So you get to meet a lot of other cyclists down there, what I thought was really unique in such a rural areas. And, yeah, just incredible stuff. And, um, you know, the kind of thing where you could you could spend a lifetime, you know, in, in a place like that. And um, But I really feel I got a great job done and, and got to see quite a bit before I, before I flew out. 
Yeah, no doubt. I'm sure you do see a lot of people on that route. It's a really popular one for bicyclists and motorcyclists alike. Um, so who are some of the people you've run across, people that are kind of lifelongers on the road the whole time? or um, Not necessarily. You know, a lot of Europeans, is lots, lots of Germans and lots of French. And, you know, I actually met some great Chilean uh, travelers as well, uh, bikepackers, where I was really surprised. And it, it's a pretty popular deal. And, um you know, uh, one thing that I that I noticed is that the, the native, you know, the the people that live there, indigenous, they're really kind of grasping onto the idea of bike packing and and uh, bike touring. You know, they're they're out there doing it and seeing it all, and I'm uh, really doing a fine job at it. Yeah, I'm sure. So you're not spending the entire time pedaling. I mean, it sounds like you're getting off the bike and and actually touring the areas that you're in and taking advantage of being down there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's kind of what happened on, in South America. You know, there was so much to see. I just, you know, you could easily ride 80 miles a day and just come right through, you know, each each place. But what, there's there's so much to see. And, I, you know, I've been on the road so long that I've I've kind of slowed down a little bit. You know, I've, I've kind of uh, stopped to smell the roses, so to speak. And and it's, it's really been a, a great way to tour because um, now I'm getting to see the places that I go to visit instead of just riding through the town. And and uh, and so I'm I'm really getting experience more. You know, I learn more language. I'm meeting more people, um, but I'm gaining more weight as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so I have to be very careful about how you know how long I'll stop somewhere. And um, so yeah, you know, there was a lot of different types of aspects of touring that I had never done before. And um, yeah, it was really unexpected. But um, um, I really feel uh, confident that it was the the proper thing to do because. Uh, there's quite a, you know, I did, I did quite a, uh, quite a few pedal uh, pedal miles as well, but uh, yeah, there's just lots to see. So I think it's important to combine some of your activities when you're on such a long haul. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, one of the things uh, after we did the interview last time, I was kind of wishing I had asked you was seat choice. And it seems like a kind of a dumb, obvious question, but at the same time, I just think, how can you spend that many hours, that many miles in a seat, on a bicycle seat of all things, and be able to do it day after day? Is there, is it just a matter of getting used to it, conditioning yourself, and finally you're, you'll, you'll accept anything? Or is there some special things you need to do with your seat if you're going to spend that much time in the saddle? You know, I think that's a really good question, and because I do have some experience when it comes to equipment, and not a lot of people ask me, and and I, I do feel I have a lot to share when it comes to that. And um, for myself, I run a Brooks saddle. It's a Brooks B17. It's a very famous, just a single piece of leather saddle that uh, was invented in the 1800s, and um, it's very, very popular for bicycle tourists. And so when I was kind of putting my my kit together, I was following you know the paths of other people and. And got my Brooks, and I have to tell you the first the first day I took it out and I rode maybe I don't know seventy miles to camp and I got I got to camp and I sat down on the picnic table and it felt like I was sitting I had something in my back pocket and I'm like <laughs> what you know what's going on and it, the deal was is I was so sore that I could hardly sit at the table um, so point being is that it, it took a little bit to break in. Um, but once you break in a great brook saddle like that, it's, it's lifetime. I got 44,000 miles on the saddle, um, but I do take care of it. And um, I don't have issues with it, knock on wood, that um, yeah, I've been very lucky. It's not an issue, so um, so I know it's working well. Wow, that's crazy. So was it the seat that broke in, or was it you that finally broke in? 
Um, it was both. It was, <laughs> it was a seat. It, 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 you know, it's a really common that it, it takes a little bit to break in the saddle. But a lot of people, you know, obviously I get a lot of uh, approach by other cyclists, and they say, you know, God, you know, my butt hurts so much when I get on my bike. And, and so this is what I tell them is that it's very normal when that happens. When you, when you haven't been on a bike and you get on the bike, you're going to be sore. And, and it, it happened for me when I first started. And I, when, when I asked and, you know, was asking around to find out what the deal was, they said, you actually have to build the muscles in your glutes. You know, you, you build muscles and, um, and that's, that's what happens. So what I tell people now is, Hey, stick with it. You're going to be sore at the beginning, but you're going to have to build the muscles. And before you know, it, it won't be a problem. And so that's really important to understand is that, you know, you're going to be sore. Everybody is. Everybody that's not on a bike all the time gets sore in the saddle because they're not used to it. The muscles have to develop a little bit, and then it's easy street after that. Yeah, okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. The longest time I've ever spent in the saddle was a 150-mile ride, and it was over two days, so 75 miles each day. So when you do what you do, I'm just blown away to, to even think about my experience you know, compared to that. But I get it. I, you know, Conditioning yourself and finding a good quality seat that fits you and and you know, being able to develop your your body to to be able to do that makes a lot of sense. I'm looking at this thing online, and it's uh, it looks like a piece of pine, to be honest with you. But but I get it. You know, I, I think I get it. it. You finally get conditioned to the yeah. seat, and condi- the seat gets conditioned to you. Yeah, that's really the the short of it. That's really the secret. You can't get discouraged. You're just gonna have to know it's gonna take a little time. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> so you're up at in Washington. Um, Caught you at the Columbia River Gorge, I think you said, right? Yes. Uh, what happened is that I was uh, connecting over off of uh, the Cascade, uh, the Cascade route, it's, um, Northern Cascades, uh, by Lake Diablo, and uh, my route I wanted to take south is the Sierra Cascade ACA route, which is on the 395. And as I came out of Oregon, uh, excuse me, Washington into Oregon. Um, I was pulled over by the forestry department and, and was notified that ahead of me there was 44,000 acre wildfire. Yikes. And so he said that I could, I could probably make it through, but he said it'd probably be best that I didn't try. Um, so with that kind of notice, I, you know, I, I did some rerouting. I did a 100-mile day, and I came down the gorge, and I'm going to go into Portland now and do some bike repair. It's just the normal bike maintenance thing that I need to take care of, and um, Portland is really the only place I can do that from here now. So it's, it's a pretty big distance. It's been a hundred degree days and it was a few hundred mile reroute. And, um, so it's just kind of a decision that I made to, uh, to reroute into Portland now, and then I'll head south from there more than likely. Yeah. Right. Well, it's a beautiful area to get trapped. <laughs> I'll take that any day. Yeah. No, no kidding. You know, but for me, Travis, I have to be honest is that rerouting is kind of tough for me. You know, I like to get a set structured plan mm, yeah. and I like to stick with my plan because, you know, I'm working hard every day, you know, I'm to get where I need to be. So any kind of backpacking or uh, anything like that's a little discouraging for me. And it's just a personal issue, of course, but um, there's something I'm not really famous about doing. You know, I like to you know, tell people where I'm going, that's where I'm going, and stick to my plan. And um, But, you know, as as you will know, and as other people know, uh, that travel, that sometimes you have to be flexible. <laughs> and the most maturest traveler and the most happiest traveler will be the one that can, can, can flex with the changing plans, you know. Oh, yeah, and that's a big lesson to learn for everybody. Yeah, so I'm growing a little bit. 
Well, cool. Well, it sounds like you're uh, you're out there having fun, and you've slowed down a little bit to an, uh, stop and smell the roses. That's good. So, what's next? What are you? Uh, where are you heading now? Okay. Well, I'm gonna probably head back down close to uh, uh, Los Angeles area, and um, I, I got to do a little bit of fundraising and a little bit of bike building before I want to head to the United Kingdom and to Europe. And so I have a little bit of a stretch to be able to get that done. So I'm going to try to play it as smart as I can and try to uh, get prepared properly before I fly over. Right. I just feel that once I get over there, I, I don't want to have to deal with any kind of uh, funding issues or any kind of dealing with the bike. I want to be able to, after 44,000 miles on this trip alone on this bike, this bike needs a little bit of help, you know? <laughs> and so, I, you know, it, it's getting, it's getting well used. And I just want to be able to, you know, continue in fashion. And it wasn't my original plan, you know, Travis, I, I thought that once I left South America, I'd just kind of be uh, bumping along over to the United Kingdom straight away. But um, I made a decision to come back to the States to just to make sure I'm going to be paired properly. That's all. Yeah, that probably makes a bunch of sense. So what kind of fundraising are you going to do? Are you going to try and do a, a Kickstarter or Indiegogo thing? or? Um, I'm not sure. You know, I'm not really big about having my hand out, you know, mm-hmm. and asking for just a free donations. I, I do marketing online on my website. So when people shop Amazon or REI or, or any of their famous uh, outdoor bike shops, and uh, I make a little percentage when they shop through my website. So I'm trying to get to promote that a little bit, and then uh, we'll see. You know, uh, you know, get some friends and maybe do a couple talks about uh, outdoor talks and um, travel. You know, travel help and whatever I can. You know, it's just whatever I can get done to uh, uh, just get funded up as, as best as I can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope you're considering and thinking on these many miles uh, each day about writing a book for the rest of us to enjoy at some point. You know, people have mentioned that, and I've it probably be something that I'd want to do, in all honesty. You know, but I always joke about people, and they, you know, they always say, oh, you, know, you should write a book. And I always tell them, ah, oh, nobody cares about my little life. And, you know, everybody laughs. And so there's some honesty about that. You know, I, I think that uh, I'm not maybe as unique as the, as the long-distance bicycle traveler uh, was at one time. But maybe I, I, I do have a story that I could share and, and maybe people are interested. I'm, I'm just uh, kind of on the fence still about uh, where I want to proceed with that. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Well, I would, for one, encourage you to do it. I think the, the stories okay. of the, of the I don't want to demean you, but of the little guy. You know, I think some of those, yeah. uh, some of those episodes on our show make the biggest impact because it's, it's something that people can relate to. Um, you know, we can have somebody that's sponsored by the big camera companies or, or the energy drinks on and talk and the story's interesting, but you know, honestly, people do want to hear from the everyday guy out there doing the thing that they can, uh, then they can relate to. So I say, write the book. I would love to read it and I will uh, absolutely be one of the readers if you end up writing one, I promise. Well, that's great. You know, it's really encouraging and I love that kind of feedback because I really like to hear what people think and, and the more, you know, encouragement I get, the more i you know, be able to push and something like that. That would be great. And I have no problem being a little guy. I like being a little guy. And, you know, <laughs> that's who I am. And because, you know, I'm making it. I'm making it as a little guy. I'm not the rich guy. I'm not the guy with the new twin bike and the guy that, you know, that has tons of money flowing out of his pocket. I'm the little guy that's making it happen. And so that's, that's uh, yeah, I think that's uh, more of a challenge, more of a venture. Uh, <laughs> and being somebody that has a little bit more financial security. <laughs> Yeah, you got that right. Absolutely. 
Well, cool. Well, obviously, as usual, we'll put your, your site up so that people can go check out and follow along and see where you are, as well as follow you on uh, Facebook. And, and guys, if you want to go help uh, support Greg, uh, click on his link to his Amazon store and, uh, you know, do your normal shopping. But uh, Greg gets a little piece of that and it'll help him push along. And maybe we can encourage him to write his book so we can all live vicariously through Greg's book. So, Greg, man, it was good catching up with you. I appreciate you taking a few minutes to uh, to give us the update of what you're doing. I uh, can't wait to see where you head to next. And when you head over to Europe, I want to hear all about it, okay? Yeah, for sure. Thank you very much, Travis. It's really good to hear from you. And uh, as soon as I know, you'll know. And uh, it should be pretty soon. As you can tell, I don't sit in one spot too long. <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, stay cool up there. Don't, uh, don't overexert. And remember to stop and smell the roses. All right, man. Great. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Greg. Cheers. Biotropic is a biological sports performance booster supplement created by Craig Dinkle, an Olympic trials athlete, to help him train at higher levels more efficiently in order to gain a competitive edge. All natural and safe, Biotropic packs your body with the highest grade quality of the B-Sweet vitamins, offers blood support, higher oxygen-carrying capabilities, an ATP booster, and vasodilation, which delivers more healthy blood content to hard-working muscles. Craig has the credentials to back it up. He twice qualified for the Olympic trials, set four NCAA records, and earned 23 All-Americans. Today, he uses Biotropics to help him train in the gym, scramble up mountains, and to prepare for a six-month through-hike of the Continental Divide Trail. Athletes and exercise enthusiasts, check out Biotropic at biotropiclabs.com, where our listeners can get a deep discount by using the code ADVENTURE. Have you heard of the Sayuai Iris 4G Action Camera? It's Adventure Sports' first always-connected camera using mobile 4G LTE networks. Push a single button and you kick off a live stream to your friends, family, and fans so they can join you on your crazy adventures. See for yourself how it works. Visit live.sayuai.com and sign up for free. Follow some of their professional mountain bikers, skimboarders, motocross riders, and of course adventurers, and join in on the fun as it happens. That's L-I-V-E dot S-I-O-E-Y-E dot com. This next update is with Brian Snyder. He's a school teacher and writer who entertains us with his anecdotes of harrowing adventures hiking all over the western states. Let's see what he's been up to since the last time we talked. All right, so we're with Brian Snyder now. Um, Brian, you guys have probably heard on a past episode, Brian is basically a school teacher and he breaks out in the summer like many of us like would like to do. And as a school teacher, he gets that, that time off. So this guy has been amazing in his ability to take very little money and travel the, the Western United States all summer long. He does uh, amazing hiking trips and he's a great writer. He's got a couple of books out, three books out actually. Uh, he writes for a column for a newspaper in New York. Um, 
So, Brian, let's check in with you and see what it is you've been up to. I know I'm catching up with you in your cabin that you're renovating up in Anaconda. So what have you been up to? Uh, well, it's about six weeks into the summer journey right now. I think about two weeks in, it was uh, cool. I was able to run into you over um, in Estes Park, which That's right. in, right in Colorado. And I think when I saw you, I just climbed a 14er. And I guess the theme for this whole summer so far has been like, uh, I'm getting up into the mountains a little bit too early. <laughs> it's earlier than I usually head to the Rockies. I had this, that wedding in Denver to go to. And since I was already in Denver, I figured I'd just begin writing, begin traveling. And I've encountered a lot of snow since uh, um, before and after we talked there in, in uh, Estes Park. And, and a lot of isolation, too, because not as many people are in the mountains yet, at least at, up at high elevations. Yeah, that's right. You were telling me about some of the post-holing you were doing uh, even, what was that? That was June, maybe? Maybe end of May that we met up, and uh, you were still seeing a lot of snow up there. Yeah, um, down in San Luis Peak, down there in southern Colorado. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So uh, you're up in Anaconda again. I know you're doing some renovations on the house up there. How's that going? Uh, pretty good. Um, part of my summers tend to be this balance between this housework and and trying to get out to the mountains and find some adventures. I, uh, you know, I'm right now. I live in California, and I could never afford a house in, house in California, at least not right now. But up in Montana, there actually are some pretty affordable houses. I bought a real fixer-upper, and so I've had to do the plumbing and the electrical and the whole works uh, with it. But it gives me a nice little base camp. It's kind of close to Yellowstone. It's close to Glacier National Park. And tomorrow, I actually am very excited to be able to go up to Glacier and do some backpacking for a few days. Well, I was reading your one of your recent articles about being up in the Anaconda Pintler um, Wilderness, and that's outside Butte. And it it it's old, typical old Brian. I was uh, reading it about how you got into a little bit of a, a bind up there. And that's what I love about your books. And I want people to, uh, to check out your books because if there's, if there's anybody that's going to inspire you to, to get out there and do some of this stuff, it's Brian, because like I said, you make, you manage to do this all on the cheap. And I think everybody needs to figure that out because we, we all spend so much time and energy and money on gear and trying to figure out what the best thing to get out there with. And here's Brian, he's just out there trucking around in a pair of sneakers and sometimes one trekking pole, you know, <laughs> so it's always nice to read your stuff and it brings, brings us back down to earth. But, uh, tell us about the experience you had up in, uh, the Pintler wilderness when you found yourself out on a ledge once again. Uh, yeah, well, I, I went out to the Pintlers with, um, uh, try, I had a, a vague idea of this loop I wanted to do, which I probably was around 40 miles or so. And I had only three days to do it with. So only two nights on the trail. And I also wanted to climb the highest mountain in the Pintlers, uh, a mountain called Wesco Peak, which is at, uh, I think it's like 10,700 um, feet above sea level. So once I did like the first 14 miles of the hike on the first day, I realized that I'm not going to be able to finish this loop in time, especially if I want to cl climb Wesco, Wesco Peak. I mean, I didn't have the time and I didn't have the food, um, maybe more importantly. So looking at the maps, I, I, I figured, hey, I... I, I need a shortcut. <laughs> and I tried to examine all the contour lines that I saw. There was one big, long ridge that separated where I was from where I needed to be. And to go all the way around the ridge would have been about 13, 14 miles. And <laughs> 
So I kind of uh, schemed that perhaps if I climbed at the top of the ridge, there was one spot along the um, where the contour lines seemed a little bit more stretched out than everywhere else, which seemed super <laughs> So I took a risk, you know, and took my backpack, hiked up a thousand feet um, to this point in the ridge and looked down. And uh, there were about three or four gullies, which led from that ridge line down steeply, very steeply down to the valley below. So I needed to get down the ridge. This seems, gullies seem possible, at least, I mean, for the first 20 or 30 feet as I hiked downward, it seemed possible. But then the gullies became more steep and more steep. And it was made out of this kind of slick, uh, well, not slick, but it was it was granite, which is kind of nice. But there's a lot of rubble, and as it grew steeper, it grew more uh, slippery. And the gully got so steep, it kind of funneled down to a point, and I finally just ditched my backpack and hiked down a little further and saw that the point that it led to was um, a cliff, a straight-down cliff, kind of something that would have probably been a waterfall if there had been water flowing so uh, I, I, I was very worried because I thought, like, I went down the most likely gully of all of them, the one that if anyone was going to lead me down the valley, this one had a possibility. So I was probably going to have to hike all the way back up to the top of the gully, um, all the way back down the way I came, and, and still do this 14-mile loop and probably finish um, my backpacking trip extremely hungry and very, very tired. But um, from that gully, I figured I could try to, like, exit the gully and go um, across the cliffs to another gully, at least kind of peer around the corner, so to speak, and see what I could find. And what I did find was just, you know, I found, like, there was patches of bare dirt in a few spots, which made me believe that this is a mountain goat trail. Like, there's actually animals that might go this way. And so I explored it and found this um, – this one kind of diagonal route that cut across the cliffs, um, a go trail. And I was able to follow it and be able to pull myself down and drop myself down and, um, and make it to the base of these cliffs. So the shortcut worked, but it was definitely a lot more dangerous, uh, than I thought it was going to be kind of. T- <laughs> That's awesome. You always get yourself into those situations. I was thinking as I was reading that, I'm like, I know this guy likes to do things inexpensively, but do you ever consider carrying a spot tracker in case something really bad happens or you just figure you throw caution to the wind? Well, that's the thing. It kind of like it ties into when people like so many people ask me, why don't you carry a bear spray? And I I, honestly, I just kind of like being a little bit vulnerable out there. I it makes like I feel my senses are maybe a bit more aware because I know there's less chances that I have to screw up. So it helps keep me kind of focused, helps keep me in the moment and maybe um, uh, just more grounded. I love that feeling. Um, however, after the glacier trip, I have to drive all the way down to California where my girlfriend is doing that 100-mile horse endurance race. And I'm helping her with that. So she is doing 100 miles on a horse in 24 hours. And she is bringing with her a spot tracker so that her crew, which includes me, could kind of track her progress as she does this super, super long um, endurance ride. And after the ride is over, she swears she's going to give me this spot tracker. And yeah, that's where it comes in <laughs> when, yeah, when the woman uh, wants you to have it. <laughs> I know. It's not something I asked for. But, uh, but hey, you know, there are, there are trade-offs to relationship, and this is one I can probably um, live with. Yeah. Well, you make some valid points there. I, I get, you know, the feeling of vulnerability a little bit and being a little bit more in tune with nature if you don't have a, uh, a safety net to fall back on. That makes sense to me. 
Yeah, yeah. So what are your plans uh, from here on out? I know you're, you're going to close up the cabin pretty soon and go down and help your girlfriend. Do you uh, do you have more time after that to, to do some hiking? And, and where do you plan on going after this? Yeah, I have about one more month. And right now, um, my hikes are helping me get back in shape so that in August, I can do a lot of my bucket, like, bucket list mountains, which includes the highest mountains in Nevada and Montana and Wyoming. Um, possibly even the Grand Teton. I need to look into that a bit more. But definitely the other three I want to make attempts at. Yeah, I wanted to bring up the the Grand Tetons. I think you and I talked about it. I interviewed Craig Dinkle about uh, his three uh, summit attempts on the Grand Teton. And he had a funny story about meeting a guy up there. You know, Craig spent a lot of time trying to get up there, and it just really kicked his butt. And finally, on the third attempt, he got up there. And as he was sitting there enjoying the the fruits of his labor, some guy just comes scrambling up and essentially sneakers, and he's just looking at him all baffled. And as soon as he told me that story, I thought, he must have met Brian Snyder up there. I'll bet he met Brian Snyder up there. <laughs> the guy, this story just made me think that was probably you, but sounds like you haven't <laughs> climbed it just yet. I hope that'll be me. Um, not very likely that I'll be that unfatigued at the top, but I hope I have success. <laughs> right. Well, I want to hear about it when you do. But of course, I'll read about it. And uh, like I said, I wanted to point out your your books and your your newsletter to the listeners. If they haven't heard your your previous episode, uh, I want to entice them to go back and listen to it. So you uh, you definitely offer the inspiration that we're looking for, and uh, I look forward to see what you do coming up here. Hey, thanks. Yeah, I guess since I guess since the last time we talked, I did put out that uh, a new book, my third book, uh, Renegade Car Camping, and that that guy is doing well. So if people want to pick it up, it's actually available for free, and they can get it at Amazon, and they can get it at my website, which is offthemapbooks.com. Yeah, absolutely. So go check out offthemapsbooks.com. That Renegade Car Camping pamphlet was good. I uh, As soon as I got my hands on it, I think I told you, I, I immediately put it to good use and found some good areas. I have my, my little Overlander van that I built up and I'm, I can camp out of it. And I immediately went right to that book and found a few uh, few places to camp on my way up through Salmon, Idaho. So I absolutely appreciate you putting that out. And, uh, and hopefully the listeners go out and get that one too, because it's definitely a, a good source of information. Yeah, I got it with some help. But yeah, if people want to feel like uh, reading some stories this summer as they're written, um, they can sign up for my mailing list at offthemapbooks.com or just check out Off The Map Books on Facebook, uh, even um, on uh, Instagram. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we'll definitely uh, link those up as usual and drive people over there. And hopefully they come to you to get some inspiration. And I do I do tell listeners, definitely go on and get the newsletter because if you like some good inspirational reading and like to hear about a guy just out there doing it on the on the cheap and just doing it for the real reason you need to, to be out there doing hiking, then Brian's your guy. So go sign up for his newsletter and uh, and follow along and see what he's up to. And you'll find your own inspiration to get out there, too. All right, Brian. Well, it's been awesome catching up with you, and uh, I wish you luck in the future, and let's get you back on and uh, hear more about what you've been up to. Hey, thanks, Travis. Uh, thanks for doing this, and i um, looking forward to hearing more of your podcast. <laughs> Absolutely, buddy. My pleasure. You have a good evening. You too. Vent Gate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for more than 20 years. 
The snow is melting and the crags are drying out. Time to break out the hiking boots, rock climbing shoes, and tents. Gear materials and designs are more evolved than ever. From the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics, Bent Gate has the premier brands for climbing, hiking, and camping essentials, including Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice on destinations, getting started, or on fine-tuning your quiver of gear? The Bent Gate staff are all passionate adventurers who can give you the data and advice you need. Bentgate is also hosting numerous events and speakers this summer, so please check out their events page at bentgate.com for more information as well as to see their full product selection. Hey, while you're sitting there listening to the show near your phone or your computer, why don't you drop us a line in the comments section or go follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Heck, do both. Show us the love. If you'll recall, Gavin Hennigan was on this past spring inspiring us with his story about turning a life of drug and alcohol addiction into one full of adventure, including ultramarathons, deep sea construction work, and his solo crossing of the 440-mile frozen Lake Baikal in Siberia. Let's see what he's planning these days. All right, so I'm back with Gavin Hennigan. And if you guys remember, Gavin um, on our show at an earlier date was talking about his trek across uh, Lake Baikal in Siberia, which was an awesome story. If you haven't heard that one, go back and check it out. But I wanted to catch up with Gavin and get an update on his current adventure. Uh, currently, he's planning on rowing across the Atlantic. So, Gavin, um, what is it you're doing and what's the plan? How are preparations going? Hey Travis, yeah, I'm uh, preparing at the moment to row across the Atlantic solo. It's actually part of a race called the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. It's a 3,000 nautical mile uh, crossing from the Canaries just off the coast of Africa over to the Caribbean and to Antigua. And it's uh, it's coming up uh, just under six months' time. Um, be setting off around the middle of December. Wow, six months. So you're getting close. How are the preparations going? And what uh, what are you using to, to row across? What's your boat like? So I've got a, there's two types of classes in the race, and it's a, a traditional uh, class and then an open class. And I've got a an open class boat, which is a, it's, it's called a Rannock. They're a, a company in the UK who built this boat, and it's a carbon fiber, um, a little bit more of a sleeker, uh, more aerodynamic design compared to the sort of traditional ocean rowing boats, um, a lot faster. Um, so I've got one of these uh, brand spanking new um, bullets of uh, boats uh, that I have here in Ireland at the moment. Uh, I've been training on it uh, the last few months uh, uh, locally here just out in the bay that we have. Um, we're actually just on the Atlantic here, but we're kind of inside a, a big bay, inside Goy Bay. Um, so, yeah, I've just been uh, trying to get in the hours um, on the boat, uh, rowing uh, as well as I've got a rowing machine in my living room. So I'm, I'm putting in a few hours on there as well. But aside from that, you know, there's just there's just so much uh, that, as, that comes with the sort of uh, the planning of the sort of expedition. It's it's nothing like I've ever experienced. The amount of kit involved is is just mind boggling. Um, trying to piece everything together, you know, obviously you've got the boat and then the the hardware on board, which is there's a lot of like uh, you know solar panels, water maker, chart plotter, uh, VHF radio, 
um, you know, autopilot. Um, and then on top of that, you've got all the equipment like para anchors, uh, which is like a sea anchor, um, you know, 90 days of food, uh, lots of different loose equipment. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough piecing it all together. Yeah, I'll bet. So are you doing this by yourself or with a crew? Well, I'm I'm on my own in the boat. I've I've I chose to go solo, which is um uh, a pretty crazy thing to be doing. Um but there's actually I think there's two other solo boats rowing in the race and then uh, there's about 16 crews all together and the rest are, are pairs uh and fours. So we'll all be setting off around the same time um to sort of row across, you know. Right on. So you said 16 crews roughly. How long do you expect this takes? Um, I think the fastest will probably be fastest out of everyone will be something sub forty days maybe. Um, I'm hoping for around fifty days. If I get under fifty days, that'd be good going. But I'm going to have ninety days of supplies, so I've got a uh, ninety days of, of, of dried food, which I actually just took delivery of there the last day, and it's uh, it's, it's five thousand calories a day for ninety days. You can imagine the the amount of food that is. Oh yeah, it's got to be loaded, man. Yeah, so. You know, I've just been I've been doing a, a ton of rowing, you know, and uh, trying to get as familiar as I can with the boat and just spend as much time as I can as possible on the boat, you know. Um, but it's actually quite tough. Uh, it's it's a lot harder than I than I envisaged because the boat is really designed to for open water kind of downwind. It's actually a downwind um, sort of uh, boat. It's designed to sort of get carried a, a bit by the currents and the winds, you know. Um, the the passage that we'll be crossing over on. From the Canaries to the Caribbean is uh, is, is sort of sort of the main passage with the uh, the equatorial current and also the the trade winds blow across there. So um, if you, it's really designed, as I said, just to go downwind. Um, so any days uh, rowing here in Goa Bay, if you've got like a strong onshore, you're not really going to be getting anywhere. So um, and also then you've got the added factor of you know being along near the shoreline and other boats and stuff like that. So the chances of kind of running aground um, are increased because there actually isn't that much control uh, with the with the rowing boat. And if you can imagine, obviously, I'm sitting in the boat facing the opposite direction, not able to see where I'm going, uh, <laughs> even though I do have a mirror and stuff. But it's it can be quite tricky uh, maneuvering, you know, in, in in smaller areas and trying to get in onto moorings and in into slipways and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's been quite challenging in that regard. Um, but, yeah, it's just all a learning experience, really, you know. Yeah, I'll bet. So do you have to plan in rest breaks uh, in this race, or is it pretty much up to you uh, whether you do or not? I mean, what kind of uh, – are there rules set in place for you guys to have mandatory breaks? No, it's it's basically – it's an unsupported row um, in that, you know, we take everything with us. You know, we don't uh, accept any sort of help along the way. Um, there is a support yacht on, on the Atlantic that, you know, can come to our aid if we need it. Um, but, yeah, as regards, you know, you just basically – you know, you're you just row across the Atlantic and you, you get there any way you can. And and uh, for me, I think you know, from speaking to to past crews and 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 other solo rowers, you know, I think a routine is really important. And I would have you know known that for myself from other expeditions. And you know, sort of trying to get a, a good daily routine, which will be you know at most rowing for three hours at a time. I think you know, just having breaks, you know, like three hours on, an hour off. Um, and then maybe sleeping a little bit extra at night time. Um, I'm hoping to row, you know, up to sort of 18, 19 hours a day um, at, at the most. Um, but then there's, you know, a lot of other, you know, things that go along with it. Like I'll have to obviously be making water um, and doing the navigation and communicating with the with the uh, HQ on shore um, and just general sort of day to day stuff. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot more than just uh, then the actual rowing, you know, keeping the boat, uh, you know, functional is an important part of it as well and keeping myself functional. 
Yeah, no, no doubt. That's going to be a huge challenge as a as a solo rower. What uh, what size is the boat? This thing looks pretty big. Yeah, you know, it looks kind of big when you're uh, when you see it on a trailer, and most people do remark that. But when you you know stick it a stick it out in the water a mile from shore, it's just a tiny speck, and it is <laughs> really really small speck. It's 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 twenty one foot. Um, yeah, and it's probably you know sort of uh, maybe six six foot wide at most, you know. So it's it's yeah, it, it seems kind of big, but yeah, I put it out in the middle of the ocean, and it's a tiny speck. So um, yeah, one of the biggest challenges I think with the ocean rowing is is trying to avoid other ships, you know, because uh, yeah, I, I'd appear pretty small compared to a you know a big uh, oil tanker or a cargo liner, you know. Oh yeah, even with radar, you're just going to be just a little speck, and they're never going to notice you. So yeah, I mean we've got the, the identification system AIS um, and then a VHF radio so um, I'll hopefully uh, the alarms will go off if, if I do encounter anything out there and then I'll be able to get on the radio and uh, you know let them know I'm here and then if, uh, if it comes down to it I've got some I've got a flares and stuff like that so um, hopefully I can avoid getting uh, you know hit on the ocean but it's a, it's a big ocean so I'm, apparently you don't encounter too much when you're out there yeah I wouldn't think so where can people follow you if they're wanting to, to go visit a website and see how the race is progressing yeah, so I've got my website up and running uh, since we last spoke. It's uh, gavinhennigan.com, G-A-V-A-N-H-E-N-N-I-G-A-N.com. And uh, yeah, you can check out uh, my blog on there. And uh, there's links to all my other social media, um, Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram um, on there. And yeah, I'm, I'm kind of keeping things up to date there. And I'll also have uh, the tracking uh, live on there. And um, at the moment, I'm just trying to sort out a, a decent... Uh, satellite connection uh through through them on the sat phone um providers so that i can hopefully be you know updating as i go um from december onwards you know i'm I, uh, hopefully maybe be able to post post pictures from along the way you know uh, very cool well i can't wait to follow along with you um what date does it actually kick off did you say uh december the 15th yeah so keep note of it and uh yeah hopefully i'll can get back on uh the podcast uh, early next year and with some with some great stories from the atlantic yeah, I would love it. Absolutely. Well, Gavin, thanks for visiting with me and be safe and absolutely good luck out there. And uh, we'll follow along with you and see how you do. Cheers, Travis. Thanks for the update. All right. Thanks, Gavin. As always, thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Go visit our sponsors. Let them know you're there because of us. And of course, get out and try something new. 